Hi, everyone. This is Samira Daswani, the host of the podcast, The Patient from Hell. Today, I have the pleasure of having Dr. Benson with us, who is an oncologist, a scientist, and an incredibly interesting person who I think is going to be sharing with us a lot of facts, stories, and of course, his research in the world of prostate cancer. So with that, Dr. Benson, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Uh, Dr. Penson, let's start with uh, where you're dialing in from and just give us a sense of, I see a lot of books behind you um, and I love asking our guests what's on their bookshelf. Well, I'm dialing in from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I'm at Vanderbilt University. Uh, I'm in my office. I'm the chair of the Department of Urology here. I'm a urologic oncologist. And let's see, what have we got behind me? Uh, uh, a, a variety of books. Some of them are clinical. Some of them are business books about leadership. And some of them are, uh, you know, sort of statistics, health services, research books. More importantly, you can actually see a picture of one of my kids behind me. And I, I think if we're going to talk about what's important behind me, that's uh-huh. what matters. Oh, okay. Let's go there. Uh, is that one of your kids? How many kids do you have? I got three of them. Three oh. of them. Yeah, yep. And uh, uh, that's my sort of behind me is my youngest. Um, and they're great. You know, it's uh, keep, keeps 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 me busy, keeps me on my toes. I'm one of three as well. Uh, I'm definitely the oldest. I have yep. two twin brothers who are younger than me. Ooh. <laughs> Twins. That's, well, I am an oldest too. People say that oldest children tend to go into medicine. So, uh, uh, my oldest is not going into medicine. No. She, in fact, none of my kids think uh, medicine is worth doing. They're, one of them told me that I work too effing hard was a direct quote. So well, I like my job. It's a great job. So, you, you, you know, what, what do they say? You know, if you love your work, you, if you love your job, you'll never work a day in your life. So mm-hmm. it's all good. Okay. All right. How, how old is your oldest? Uh, she is 23. Oh. I have a 23-year-old, a 20-year-old, and an 18-year-old. Perfectly right. Like that, that's like perfect uh, stack ranking of ages right there. <laughs> Just worked out that way. Okay. All right. So let's go to the last category of books you have in terms of like health science research, operations research. Can you talk to us about what that is and like why that's on your bookshelf? Sure. Sure. So um, health services research is sort of a, a very uh, wide ranging uh, field of research and it covers a lot of different things. You know, it's around healthcare delivery. Uh, it looks at systems, uh, uh, you know, healthcare insurance policy. Um, I'm really very interested in patient centered research. Um, um, I, I went down this road when I was a resident, you know, I was working in a lab and killing a lot of rats um, and, and doing basic science and, and having nightmares of that because, you know, uh, uh, and, and I'll be frank with you, I, I didn't feel like what I was doing was making any difference to people who had diseases, you know, it didn't, uh, you know, and wasn't, or healthy people. I felt like it was a bit removed. I'm not saying it wasn't important. I mean, I think mm-hmm. laboratory research is very important. It's how you make advances, how you understand things. But to me, that wasn't where I was, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was drawn to to more sort of, I don't want to say clinical research, although it was clinical too. I, I was drawn to research that affected people directly. 
And one of the things about health services research, HSR, some people talk about outcomes research, is it can be very clinically relevant, touch individual patients, but it can also be very policy relevant. And I kind of felt like if I could do research that informed healthcare policy and change something that, say, Medicare was doing, instead of, you know, finding a drug that helped, you know, one patient at a time, I was going to get a bit of information that would help literally millions of people. Um, and so, so that's kind of what drew me to it. And like I said, health services research is, is kind of a gamish, you know, it, there, it, it encompasses a lot of different areas. Um, uh, I've really focused on sort of, you know, patient-centered outcomes research and comparative effectiveness. Yeah. Um, but that's just one element of it. I mean, I, I, the financial piece of it, you know, cost of care and cost yeah. of it, uh, effectiveness really appeals to me. Um, you know, we're looking uh, at other outcomes that are not traditional outcomes. I've always been interested in health-related quality of life. Um, but now we're talking a lot about financial toxicity, which I think is really underappreciated in the United States and is, you know, almost as bad as, you know, cured of the disease, but now you're in debt for 10 years. It's, it's, it's almost as bad. So, so that's kind of, you know, the field goes in a lot of different directions, qualitative research, but that's the area I liked about it. Dr. Penson, there was one uh, one thing you mentioned that I'd love for us to provide a bit of a definition around, which is comparative effectiveness. Sure. So can you sure. talk a little so, bit about what that means? Yeah. So, you know, comparative effectiveness research is, it's been around forever. Uh, people have different names for it, but it's basically, you're comparing the effectiveness of various interventions for a condition. Um, you know, I've been focused in prostate cancer. So a lot of what I'm uh, focused on is comparing the effectiveness of surgery and radiation. And for that matter, active surveillance. Uh, uh, in outcomes in prostate cancer. And a lot of people will make the jump to think, okay, well, you're, you're studying cancer, right? And so ergo, you gotta be looking at survival. And that's, and, and that's an outcome we look at, don't get me wrong, but it's only one outcome. And for a lot of patients, it's, it's, it may not be the most important outcome or it may be equally important, or there may be other outcomes which are equally important. So like, and I think it's important because we don't have a lot of, comparative effectiveness research in, in certainly in, in prostate cancer. We think we do, but in the end, what we have is we have a lot of, you know, studies looking at a single study, a single intervention and outcomes following that. And then we're looking at this group of patients and that group of patients and try, instead of comparing in the same group of patients, which is really what comparative effectiveness research is. Got it. Uh, can I share something? And I'd love for you to sort of uh, correct me, edit it, modify it. Sure. Um, the one thing that I've been finding fascinating about prostate cancer vis-a-vis -vis breast cancer. So I'm a breast cancer survivor, um, AYA, so adolescent, young adult. Uh, what I found in breast cancer is there is a decent amount of A versus B. Right? Like if you compare the outcome for just surgery versus surgery plus radiation, there is actual data on overall survival and on health-related health quality of life, so just call overall quality of life. And your overall survival is disease-free survival, overall survival, local recurrence, metastatic. There's actually a decent amount of data. And what I've been finding is, as a patient, it's actually very hard to understand the data, to interpret the data, and then make a decision. What's been surprising to me for prostate cancer is... When I, and I'm of course not, I'm not a patient. I 
this is completely outside in, but it's been surprising to me that when you look at A versus B in prostate cancer, there doesn't seem to be an equivalent depth or body of work that supports that A versus B. Is that a fair assessment of kind of where we are today? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And let's talk about why that is. People are always comparing prostate cancer to breast cancer. Um, no, it's a reasonable comparison. You know, like, you know, breast cancer tends to affect women. There's a small amount of men who get it. Prostate cancer only affects men. So it's a gender specific cancer. They're, bo- they're both hormonally sensitive. Um, that you know, uh, breast has glandular tissue, prostate has glandular. Like people love to make that analogy, and there are some real analogies there. You know, I mean, BRCA two and breast, BRCA two and prostate. Um, but there are some real differences, and I think it's an oversimplification to just put them together. Uh, although people like to. That being said, people then will say, "Well, how can we have so much more data in breast cancer than we do in prostate cancer?" And my response to that is, it's not that we have so much more data in breast cancer and prostate cancer. It's that we have so much more high quality data in breast cancer than prostate cancer. You know, so a lot of clinical trials in breast cancer and fewer clinical trials in localized prostate cancer specifically. Why is that? A lot of different reasons why that is. I think women have always been... um, uh, breast cancer doesn't carry the stigma that prostate cancer does, you know, I think, and this is just my opinion, uh, you know, you, you know, like, I don't think women are ashamed to say I'm a breast cancer survivor. I, I, I had men are not great patients as a general rule of thumb, says a man who's not a great patient, right? Um, acknowledging that that is totally like probably politically incorrect and whatever, but it's just my observation. And certainly my N of one, uh, Dave, uh, supports that. Um, so, you know, guys don't like to go and get treatment often and they don't want to talk about prostate cancer, particularly mm-hmm. because the, 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 you know, prostate cancer affects, you know, intimacy and urinary function. Breast cancer does too, but in a different way with body image. So if you go, I, I think that's part of it. I think women have been more willing and uh, to, to be part of trials. I think women have been more uh, politically active and have advocated for, uh, um, uh, you know, funding and, and pushed it. Whereas in the prostate cancer community, that we're there. Don't get me wrong. We're there now. But I think we're a little slower. I'm sure I'll get a call from someone from one of the prostate cancer groups yelling at me, but uh, we're there now, I swear. Okay. But, um, you know, um, but the other thing that's really important to recognize is you, in the breast cancer world, you have, you know, all those great trials that Bernie Fisher ran all those years ago. Uh, And and we can, we can talk, um, we can talk about why those trials were able to occur as I understand it. Uh, Again, don't do it, not an expert in that area, where now in doing prostate cancer trials, it's very hard to recruit men to trials for localized disease. There's one big trial from the UK, um, but the culture is different in the UK. And, you know, they can do it through the National Health Service there. Whereas here, you know, we've tried to do these big you know, randomized clinical trials of, um, you know, the standard treatments for prostate cancer in the U.S. and they don't accrue, you know, it's almost 20 years ago now, we tried to do a big trial of surgery versus brachytherapy. Um, 
through one of the cooperative groups. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we were going to accrue 2,000 men in about, you know, three, four years. And we accrued, you know, 55 men in a year because no one wanted to get on. And they were all from one Canadian site. All right. Wow. And there are a lot, we can talk about why that is, why it's so hard to accrue. Some of it is the clinicians too. We all have our biases. You know, surgeons believe in surgery, radiation oncologists believe in radiation oncology, and never the twain shall meet. And uh, um, but but I think your original comment is holds up, which is there's more high quality level one evidence in breast cancer than there is in prostate cancer. And that that allows women who are affected in the small amount of men, but mostly women who are affected with breast cancer to make maybe better evidence-based decisions, maybe, you know, um, and a lot of what I've done is, which is not clinical trial work, but which I think is, you know, fairly high-end prospective observational studies, mm -hmm. acknowledging that they're not clinical trials. You know, the goal has always been to sort of try to help men with this disease make a quote unquote, better decision that's more congruent with their personal interests. Because as we, as you alluded to before, a lot of different outcomes and, you know, different people go different ways, you know? Um, so I, I definitely want us to go and do decision-making in prostate cancer as, as a whole mm -hmm. topic. But before we go there, I want to circle back to stigma. Because I think you said this, and I think it was a very profound comment that the stigma of prostate cancer is different than that in breast cancer. Uh, maybe I can share a quick analogy and then um, have you respond to that or unpeel, unpeel that a little bit, which is if I think back to the history of breast cancer, even in the U.S., if we look back 30 years or so, I would argue that breast cancer was incredibly stigmatized. And the work of Susan G. Coleman, Dr. Susan Love, and, and the kind of pink ribbon movement has sort of taken us from a place of high stigmatization to a world in which it may not be as stigmatized. There is still stigma associated with it, but it's just different and it's less, I think it's less intense. A bunch of our audiences in India, and I would say in India today, we are where the US was 30 years ago with stigma with breast cancer. People don't talk about it. It's a hidden disease. Women absolutely will not be on the streets talking about how they're a survivor. It's one of the reasons why I actually honestly do this podcast is because I had South Asian women talk about how important it was to see South Asian women talking about breast cancer. Right? So it was one of the big, big reasons why I decided to actually talk about at least my personal story. So I think stigma is kind of an evolution that's been happening. And I think in the US, we're at a point where there is an embracing of a different identity when it comes to breast cancer survivorship. Um, I'd love to sort of hear you talk a little bit about kind of prostate cancer and where we are with that trajectory. And where you see us going with that, because um, I'd imagine it's a similar evolution that's been happening. Yeah. Uh, so I can't really speak to breast cancer. Uh, I mean, I can, I shouldn't because I'm not an expert in it. Or uh, Some people might say I'm not an expert in prostate cancer, but I definitely will give you, I'm not an expert in breast cancer. Um, the one thing, so there, I, I mean, it starts at the beginning. Uh, you know, why is prostate cancer different? And what I mean by that is, so if a woman is getting screened for breast cancer, and this is just sort of conjecture, I mean, what what is it? What, what, uh, screening is mammography and it's a physical exam, which is, you know, uh, external. Correct. You know, um, screening with prostate cancer traditionally includes a digital rectal exam, right? 
Uh, and, and let me tell you something. There are a lot of communities which are absolutely, you know, just recalcitrant to that yeah. exam. Um, yeah. and, and, and so that's one difference, um, I think that should be sort of mm. highlighted. Um, you know, the other thing that I think is worth considering is sort of, and I'm just pointing out the differences again, and then we can talk about where we are. Um, I think when women get breast cancer, it, it definitely affects body image and it affects intimacy, right? Uh, no two ways about it. And, 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 but, you know, prostate cancer does that and then some, right? Because men, um, you know, what are the side effects of treatment for prostate cancer, right? Erectile dysfunction. You know, we, you know, no one would even discuss erectile dysfunction in, you know, before 1997, you know, when Viagra came along, right? I mean, it was just not something that was yeah. discussed. And, and so I think that has always been one of the things that has kind of put men off because, you know, it's, it's around you know, and, and same with breast cancer with breasts and femininity, but, you know, with men, it's a, it's a masculinity thing. Right. Um, and, and, you know, the other side effects, treatment around urinary function, et cetera, so forth. Um, so I think, you know, that's, you're, you're sort of not starting in exactly the same place. Again, the, people want to make that sort of analogy. and I'm not sure it's entirely fair. Mm-hmm. That being said, where are we now? I think that, the prostate cancer community has come a long way. And I think culture in general has come a long way about prostate cancer. Um, Again, the first piece is sexual dysfunction. You know, what was never discussed, you know, 30 years ago, Mm. suddenly you have, uh, you know, a pill that can treat run-of-the-mill erectile dysfunction and you're getting, you know, TV commercials. And suddenly we can talk about this because it's a disease. It's not a, you know... Uh, it's a condition. Mm-hmm. And so I think that helped people to talk about prostate cancer. I think more and more public figures have come out and said, I've had prostate cancer. You know, think back to and this. I do know something about with breast cancer, you know, the Betty Ford effect um, and other celebrities who have had it, you know, Angelina Jolie, you know, that's made it more acceptable with prostate cancer. You know, the prostate cancer community has lagged a little behind that, but now you have some pretty well-known prostate cancer survivors. The, you know, the one that jumps to mind in the U.S. for many, many years ago was Norman Schwarzkopf. That was a big deal, you know, and then I think it was Arnie Palmer, one of the golfers, you know, so, so you know, that's made it acceptable. Um, and you've had, well, you've had, you know, like the Komen Foundation and, you know, these very strong breast cancer advocacy groups you know, the prostate cancer community has lagged behind a little bit, but we're there, you know, with groups like Us Two and Zero and and FEN, these these great advocacy groups, just to name a few. I mean, um, but they're younger than the breast cancer groups, um, you know, and and so so I think prostate cancer is catching up because men are willing now to say, yeah, I'm a prostate cancer survivor and it's OK to to say that whereas i don't think it was before but i think you know you're still behind breast cancer and and yeah it's just like anything else you know time time catches up right so thank you for sharing that i i definitely did not appreciate one thing you just said which was it was only in 1997 that we started talking about erectile dysfunction 
Which as much as we did. I mean, we were starting to talk about before, but not not like, you know, that put things into hyperdrive. And that's actually fairly recent. We're talking under under three decades. It's, it's yeah. very recent. So it's almost like culture is catching up. And as culture is catching up, the way medicine is being practiced in prostate cancer is also changing kind of as a reaction or a, a side effect. A side effect, ah, no pun intended, but as a <sighs> consequence of the culture catching up and changing. So, uh, Yeah, I mean, that's removed the stigma. You know, there's another piece that we probably should cover or, or mention that I don't know how it plays in breast cancer, but I know how it plays in prostate cancer, is that prostate cancer, at least in the U.S., and worldwide, but, but particularly in the U.S., affects different racial ethnic groups to greater or lesser degrees, right? And then you get into some real cultural differences between different groups. You know, so in the U.S., you know, it's, it's much more common in black men. Mm-hmm. And the way they respond to these things may be different than other cultural groups. Um, and so that's that's affected things as well. And, and, you know, Hispanic men have another way of looking at it. White men, you know, prostate cancer in Asia is a little less common. But here it is they change diet. I mean, so so you have this cultural element to it, too, because sexuality and body image is often tied to, you know, cultural norms. And so, so it adds a, a wrinkle to things that you, you, we don't often consider. And, and I assume it happens in breast. Again, I, I, not what I do for a living. So No, I think the racial and cultural differences is very, very prevalent in breast. And I think it's one of the areas that has been understudied, under-talked about, and depending on how you do your uh, racial cultural cohorts, it, it absolutely, the, the data on it is not very compelling yet. Uh, which I do know is kind of a moving target right now. But um, I want to go back a little bit to screening because uh, I thought that was also a profound insight, which was mammograms are not fun, but they're not, they're of course not as invasive as a uh, screening test for prostate cancer. But what about PSA? What about PSA? Does have that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so now you're getting into, uh, I love this discussion. I mean, this has um, been sort of, and it's interesting. I've been very involved in this um, uh, uh, over the years, you know, cause, and again, we can contrast breast and prostate though. We probably shouldn't where the United States preventive services task force is mm-hmm. on all this. And it gives you another example of, you know, when, when USPSDF made their original uh, recommendation around mammography in younger women, you know, f- what is it, 15 years ago? Um, and within a month, they had to, to, to sort of backpedal because the, 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 the women's advocacy groups were hollering and, and they were calling their congressmen. When the same thing happened with prostate cancer screening in 2012, yeah, the advocacy groups sort of raised a, a, a ruckus, but it wasn't as effective because, you know, it, it didn't quite have... At that point, I think they do now have the political sway. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure if anyone from those groups is listening, I'm going to get an angry email. But I, I, I was there for it. I can tell you that, you know, they had some hearings on the Hill, but nothing like what happened with mammography. Mm-hmm. PSA is a good, it's a great tumor marker. It is a great tumor marker. Once you know you have prostate cancer, and particularly after treatment, it is a great way to follow response yeah. to therapy. It is hmm. a average on a good day screening test. 
Um, and that's part of the problem with it is that we do have some big trials around prostate cancer screening and specifically PSA testing, which is better than DR, better than digital rectal exam. A lot of people say you don't even need a DRE anymore. And I think if it's going to get more people to be screened for prostate cancer, it's completely reasonable not to do the DRE, in my humble opinion. Um, but when you go to PSA test, it gets, it's really interesting because the two big studies, there's an American study and a European study. The American study was a negative study, PLCO. You know, it's the prostate arm of, of, of what was a huge test, right? Mm. Um, and a, a, a huge study, I mean to say. And yet like 75,000 men, and it was a negative study. There was no uh, advantage, uh, survival advantage to prostate cancer screening. And that drove the original USPSDF decision. We'll talk about the European study in a minute. Um, but part of the problem with that study was that it was contaminated. So it wasn't really a study of screening versus no screening. I mean, it was done in the 1990s when PSA came out. It was a study of some screening versus a whole lot of screening. And in post hoc analyses of that study in the control arm, the control arm actually, on average, had more PSA tests than the intervention arm. So, you know, I mean, it's at first they were calling it, USPSTF was calling it a high quality study. They walked back to a fair quality study. And I don't mean to to dump on the study. I mean, it's it's a, uh, it was a Herculean effort and God bless the NCI for doing it. And there are a lot of things we've learned from it. And there's a lot of biomaterials from it, but the primary question of screening versus no screening isn't really answerable in a study where one arm, the no screening arm has a lot of screening in it, right? And there's a lot of data to back what what I'm saying up. The European study is much more interesting to me. The European study was positive, but it wasn't profoundly positive. And if you look at the European study, it's, it's eight centers. Um, and it's another big study, you know, I can't remember the exact number, but, you know, tens of thousands of patients. Um, and of the eight centers, six were negative and two were positive. Hmm. And the two that were positive, one of them, the Swedish center, Gothenburg, was so positive, it drove the entire study. And you have to ask, yeah, yeah. You have to ask yourself, why did that happen? Well, one of the interesting things about that study is that the protocols weren't standardized between the the centers, all right? So it's more like, almost like a meta analysis. You know, they had different cut points and uh, for when to get a biopsy. They had different uh, screening frequencies. The control arm was pretty clean, so we can go there. And to me, what that showed me was you had two groups. Uh, Rotterdam was positive, but not profoundly so. Gothenburg was profoundly positive. And the remaining six sites, Spain, I forget, the, the Germany, I think there was an Italian, I don't remember which centers or where the centers were, were negative. And so what that tells me is it's not just about, PSA is going to behave differently depending on how you use it and um, how often you do it. And your, pre, your pre-test probability of having prostate cancer. So in other words, you know, that PSA test may be of greater value to say a man with a strong family history of prostate cancer who has a much greater pretest probability than someone who has you know no reason to have increased risk. Mm-hmm. So it gets into the nuances. Mm-hmm. The USPSTF 
to their to their great credit, I, I you know, yeah. recognize that you know giving it a D in 2012 was probably too much. Um, there's certainly not enough there to to support an A or or a B. And when I say things like that, my urology colleagues get very angry at me. But the data are the data, right? Um, uh, but the C, which is discuss the pros and cons of screening with the patient and make an informed decision, is is reasonable. Hard to do that because it, it's not a, a it's not a simple you know here are the pros here are the cons let's move on with it. And most guys just say just do the darn blood test. But the problem with PSA screening in and of itself is there are a lot of false positives, yeah. and there are not an insignificant number of false negatives. So. Yeah, you're going to find more prostate cancer if you get a PSA test, but it's imperfect. And, you know, you get a false positive, you're going down an ugly road Um, with regard to no one wants to have a prostate biopsy. It's got some side effects. And certainly, certainly, you know, and things have changed a little bit, but certainly when USPSTF first looked at it in 2012, there was a lot of over-treatment of prostate cancer. Guys with low grade disease were getting, you know, radiation therapy and getting interventions, which they may not have been getting any cancer benefit from, but they sure were getting some side effects. Now the math has sort of changed. And with in the year of active surveillance, I think it makes screening more favorable. Um, But the fact of the matter is it's still really nuanced, you know, and um, and and PSA testing is is imperfect. And there are other adjunct tests now. There are things like prostate MRI, there are other biomarkers, but in the end, the first step is usually a PSA test. And, and I think it, it's, it's nuanced. And the AUA, which is uh, the American Urological Association, which is my professional society, just came out with new recommendations around screening and does say, discuss screening, doesn't say everyone should be screened. They've sort of started talking about maybe getting a PSA test in your mid forties, because there's a pretty good literature that a Baseline PSA test will establish your pretest probability of um, of uh, of um, you know clinically significant prostate cancer in your lifetime. But the other thing that they mention is they basically say you, we should probably not be doing annual screening with PSA testing. Probably biannual every other year, um, you know, because uh, you know less may be more here. I can tell you personally, uh, you know, probably I'm going to overshare here. You know, I'm, 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 I'm 58. Uh, my father and my grandfather lived a long time, both had benign prostate disease. So both had, you know, procedures that they did not have prostate cancer. When I was turned 50, you know, my PSA was 0.4. I was like, okay, I have a very low risk of prostate cancer. I'm not going to check this again for, you know, three to five years. You know, I checked it again at 55. It was 0.4, um, you know, and and I'm, well, I did check it again because I'm an old man. I'm starting to wake up at night to, to pee. Uh, so it's no longer a screening test then. Then it's a symptom test. But had I been asymptomatic, I wouldn't have checked it again until I was 60. And I probably at some point would just have said, you know, stop. Because there's some, you know, modeling studies that say, you know, if your PSA is below one at age 60, you may not need to check it again. So, so I mean, there's real nuance yeah. here, real nuance. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. And I don't think it's too much information. Trust me. Trust me. <laughs> we've gone into all sorts of areas on this podcast that is, yeah, so not, not TMI. Um, what's fascinating to me is that in an area, the way you're describing the nuance, 
it's actually very hard to standardize it across a population. It really is. Because in that, you really are relying heavily, heavily on the clinician's interpretation of the data. And, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, but I think what happens is there's also clinical variability I'm imagining across the country, right? Like if you're in California vis-a-vis -vis Tennessee, there's just this cultural changes, there's clinical practice changes. There's a lot of variability. So it then really comes down to patient-doctor interactions at the individual level, which to some extent is great, but in the absence of compelling data and clear-cut data, I personally find it daunting, but that's my advice oh. too. I just like my data. <laughs> I, I'm with you. I mean, and the problem is we're never going to get the data we need here now. We're never going to get it because the cat's out of the bag. Um, you know, you couldn't do a PSA screening study in 2023 because the control arm is never going to say, I don't want to have a PSA test. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I would argue, you know, and there, look, if you, there are so many <clears throat> decision aids around prostate cancer screening out there. Is the, I, you know, I've done some research here, you know, others have done some much better research than I ever did. You know, there's a tool from the CDC, there's a tool from the NIH, there, you know, it, uh, you know, uh, Mike Barry and his group made a tool years ago. Um, and in the end, it's too easy to just say, it's just a blood test. What the hell? Just do it for me, you know? And, 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 and if I'm a primary care doc who I'm dealing with diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, and obesity, I either don't want to deal with prostate cancer screening, or I'm going to say, well, you know, probably no harm in doing it. You're right. And I don't blame them. You know, I, I, I'm, I don't have the attention span to be a primary care doctor. It's just too much. Right. I'm very focused. Um, but here's the thing. Where the math has changed is, is in the, once you get the diagnosis. And yes, we would be so much better avoiding overdiagnosis. So much better. But we're having a hard time with that. I don't think we're going to be able to put the genie back in the bottle there. But the good news is, is that we are doing a really good job minimizing overtreatment. Now, we can do better. You know, some of the studies now say that in the U.S., about 60% of men with low-grade disease yeah. are going on active surveillance. And, you know, that number probably should be higher. I don't think it should be 100% for a number of reasons, yeah. you know. But but um, if you told me, I made this statement publicly, you know, 10 years ago, you know, I did not believe that my, you know, brethren and sistren in urology we're going to be able to divorce diagnosis from treatment in prostate cancer. I just said it's never going to happen um, because, you know, the it was a perfect storm. Patients don't like to hear the word cancer and they want to be treated. Uh, doctors are risk averse and so they're going to want to treat. And frankly, their financial incentives are drive towards treatment, right? And so if you had told me that in 10 years, 60% of low-grade prostate cancer patients were going to be treated with active surveillance in the United States, I would have bet you a lot of money that wouldn't happen, and I would have lost. So God bless and I couldn't be happier to be wrong. And I think that's where the math has changed. That's the, the big change. Um, and we need more. We need more. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm really happy with that. I, um, 
I'm watching the clock and I think that what you just said at the very end, I think is such a phenomenal summary of part one. And I think will lead us directly into part two of this episode, of this podcast, which is the interaction between overdiagnosis and overtreatment and how it's almost like a seesaw. And we've made a lot of dents in over like reducing overtreatment, but haven't made dents in reducing overdiagnosis, but they are interlinked to each other for all the reasons you mentioned. Uh, patients don't like cancer, like the word cancer. Well, I'm, I don't like cancer. Clinicians uh, <laughs> want to treat, and there's a lot of financial incentives to treat. And despite that, we're sort of seeing a rise in active surveillance in this population. So um, if it's okay with you, I'm going to wrap up part one here, and then we'll explore what we just ended with in part two. So just so for a teaser, and also so you remember to cue me to this because I'll forget. Um, when you talk about overdiagnosis, you know, what's interesting now is that there are some imaging tests that are being used more commonly, like prostate MRI. And now you have this PSMA PET scan, mm. um, which may be useful as secondary screening tests to reduce the risk of overdiagnosis. Um, now, the flip side of that is that it's going to increase the cost of screening substantially, at least in the United States. So now you're at a different, again, an area which I'm fascinated by, which is, you know, cost benefit. But um, I, I think if you want to go down that road, it's a fascinating discussion because, you know, how do you make screening better so you get less overdiagnosis? And how do you make it better effectively at population scale, i.e. have yep. low cost? Yep. Otherwise, we bankrupt the U.S. healthcare system. Well, I was going to say, we're doing it already. So what the heck, right? It's true. <laughs> so on that, on that very optimistic note, we're going to wrap up part one. Uh, Dr. Benson, thank you so much for joining us today. I really Thanks appreciate for having it. Me. This has been such an incredible discussion. And I can't Thanks, wait appreciate you. Great, thank you. This episode was supported by an award from the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. We are launching podcast clubs. Think book club, but for podcasts. Grab your favorite beverage, pull up a chair, fire up your computer, and join us for a virtual discussion where you can ask questions, share your thoughts, and learn together based on the episode as we navigate the cancer experience. Click on the link in the show notes to register. These podcast clubs are supported by the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. Our first podcast club features our friends at the Mike Slive Foundation. Mike Slive was a transformative leader whose vision and direction revolutionized the business of collegiate sports. As former commissioner of the Great Midwest Conference, Conference USA, and the SEC, Mike Slive was a man who understood competition. Leading with quiet dignity, the commish was a chief catalyst in creating the college football playoff and creating the SEC's TV network partnership with ESPN. During his tenure as SEC commissioner, the league achieved unprecedented success on the field and in the front office. Mike Slive understood competition and inspired by his own fight with prostate cancer, he retired from college athletics in 2015, co-created the Mike Slife Foundation, and served as its first president. Under his direction, 
the foundation endeavored to create the team that would become a global leader in the fight to eradicate prostate cancer through public awareness, early detection, and research funding. We hope you will join us for our very first podcast club. This podcast, show notes, and newsletter is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or any materials linked from this blog is at the user's own risk. The content here is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.